Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. It's Christmas 1922. The BBC has been on air for six weeks in London, Birmingham and Manchester. But when the government agreed this British broadcasting company could exist, the deal wasn't for three stations that already existed, but for eight all across Blighty. So where the blazes are they? Isn't it time for a new pop-up radio station to, well, pop up? Wouldn't that be the best Christmas present a Geordie radio listener could ask for? This time, let it 5 and 0, oh, let it 5 and 0, oh, let it 5 and 0. Oh. Uh, that joke works better written down. Newcastle 5NO joins the airwaves in time for Christmas? Hmm, just maybe. Plus, behind the scenes at 5IT Birmingham and 2ZY Manchester, those pre-existing stations, as we tune in to Christmas 1922 and we'll hear the voices of the three wise station directors of the BBC's second, third and fourth stations. Christmas Eve Eve and Christmas Eve 1922 is where we find ourselves this episode, which is why we've broken out the jingling bells in our backing music once again. So whether it's Christmas or not where you are, because it isn't here, hop on our time sleigh set for 99 years ago. Christmas in Newcastle on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling... This is London Calling. Hello, hello, PK Calling. Are we coming through clearly? I do hope so. That's pretty much how they would start their test transmissions in earlier 1922. Over the past 33 episodes, we've seen how those early voices, early tests, those wireless manufacturers all brought together science, art and a bit of magic to make British broadcasting a thing. Oh, that sentence started so well. And what do you expect? You haven't paid, have you? This is a free podcast, unless, of course, you have paid, in which case, thank you for supporting us on Patreon or coffee.com. Links are in the show notes on how to do that and how to keep the wheels turning here on the British Broadcasting Century podcast. What a lovely Christmas present that would be. Why am I talking about Christmas? It's September 2021 as I record this. Well, apart from being obsessed with Christmas, I wrote a book on the history of Christmas called Hark! The Biography of Christmas, available now. And also, as we know in broadcasting circles, all of the Christmas specials are recorded in the middle of summer. It's just the done thing. Well, it's just that Christmas is where we find ourselves. Our timeline has reached that point. So the last few episodes, we've dwelt in London at Marconi House with the HQ staff of four, Reith included. He's just got that job. They are setting up in Magnet House, but are yet to move in. And thank you for your lovely feedback on the last couple of episodes, by the way. Very, very kind of you. We got very geeky about the studio design of Marconi House. Thank you to Andrew Barker. He's our newspaper detective, as well you know. Article after article has been available to us of when the printed press were invited in in late December 1922 to get a journalist's view of those studios. So we did have a lot to get across. Now, we've got a bit more along those lines this episode, but further north. Before we get to Newcastle and the launch of their new station, the fourth BBC station, there was more than just London on the dial, of course. We're going to tour the other BBC stations and hear rare clips of each of their station directors, how things were running in late December 1922. There's the second BBC station in Birmingham, the third BBC station in Manchester, and the fourth in Newcastle, which, at this point in our grand story of British broadcasting, has yet to begin. Let's begin, then, in Birmingham. It'll help us to appreciate their civilised environs when you see the ramshackle joint that Newcastle have to deal with. 
So in December 1922, Birmingham is a fairly primitive setup. I don't mean the whole city, but uh, well, you know, see Peaky Blinders for details. No, the Birmingham 5IT station out in Witten in the Birmingham suburbs was just a month or so into its life at this point, as its first station boss, Percy Edgar, later recalled from a far comfier studio. Sitting here tonight in a modern studio as acoustically perfect as science can make it, equipped with the latest broadcasting appliances, I can't help contrasting it with that tiny, heavily draped, thickly carpeted room in which it all began in 1922. That was Percy Edgar in 1947, and here he is again in 1962. The studio furniture consisted of a player piano, which we made great use of, uh, a gramophone, which perhaps we made even greater use of, and a little platform on which we stood the artist to stop them walking away from the microphone, which some of them did. Back then in the BBC's infancy, the station director did most things. Announce, book the acts, sing sometimes, play sometimes. Percy Edgar found it a real song and dance, hiring performers who loved a song and, unfortunately, a dance. Uh, We had a soubrette from the Aston Theatre Royal one night. And for every refrain to her song, she walked up and down the studio doing her stage routine with the studio manager following her with a microphone (laughs) trying to catch what she was singing about. Very amusing. Oh, yes, it it had its humorous side, I must say, as well as its serious side. Well, the listeners couldn't tell. And in fact, those who would switch between the London and Birmingham stations often found that Birmingham had the edge. The broadcasting was a long time coming, but now that it's here, it is certainly remarkably good. As good as Tuolo has always been, Birmingham is gaining week by week in popularity, and so far as the Boston operators are concerned, seems to be the favourite. This from the Boston Guardian, 16th of December 1922, and that is, of course, Boston on the east coast of England, rather than the east coast of the United States. Really, the good things said about it are thoroughly deserved. They are prompt to the minute, and there is nothing to grumble at concerning the excellence of the programmes they put on for us night after night. The operator is worthy of praise, and if anyone has that much-valued natural possession, a radio voice, then he has. Arthur Burroughs may have had the golden voice on 2LO in London, but in Birmingham things were perhaps a little crisper, maybe a little more polished. You see, these stations, they're all part of one BBC, but they are slightly in competition with each other at this stage, partly because they're set up by different wireless manufacturers. And it's no bad thing if a little competitiveness encourages a boost in quality. There are many difficulties for the Master of Ceremonies. There are words in the excellent news budgets that take a little pronouncing in the ordinary way. But our friend, and he seems a friend now, has that gift that not only makes pronunciation easy, but as clear at our instrument end, so to speak, as it is at his. He would excuse the flattery, but his French pronunciation comes through with equal accuracy and clarity as his English, which is saying a great deal. I often wonder how a bit of Welsh would sound over the ether. Praise indeed there for the Birmingham announcer, who likely by this point is Percy Edgar. It was just three rooms we had there, which the General Electric Company had been kind enough to place at our disposal. One was the office, and on the right of that was the transmitter room, and on the left of it the studio. Quite a small room, very heavily draped from floor to ceiling with blanket cloth and a thick carpet on the floor to deaden sound. The engineers, and I'm sure they'll agree with me, knew very little about acoustics at that time. 
and this was considered the, the best way of dealing with it. Well, just weeks into his job as station director, Percy Edgar was amassing a small team around him. Within a few weeks, Harold Casey accepted my invitation to become my assistant. And later on, Jack Cooper joined us as engineer in charge. I'm very happy to say that they're both still with me. Casey as regional executive and Cooper still in charge of our engineering activities. I actually, I joined in June 1923 and it came about in this way. We'll hear more from Jack Cooper when he joins in 1923. So while Percy Edgar is adding to his Birmingham team with a loyal assistant station director up in Manchester, that's another of the first three BBC stations, the team is also expanding. On December the 19th, 22, that's the same Tuesday when the London squad were finding their new home of Savoy Hill, the Manchester station, they also gain a new employee, Victor Smythe. And he'd been interested from the start a month earlier. I met an old friend of mine in a very famous drinking house in Manchester who was going out to Metropolitan because of Trafford Park to what he said was one of the most marvellous things in the world. And he took me out there uh, to see um, this radio business at work. This wireless thing, as he called it. Uh, that is how I went out there in November. I think I'm right in saying November the 28th, 1922. By mid-December, he's applying for a job at 2ZY Manchester. On December the 19th, he starts work. In one show, he would read the news, do a funny story, do a talk as Mr X. And when they started doing full days of broadcasting, he was known to be announcer from 9.30am to midnight. It's like some kind of Simon Mayo record-breaking comic relief telethon. Now, I said earlier that we would have the voices of three station directors. So, all right, Victor Smythe actually became deputy station director at 2ZY Manchester. The station director, Kenneth Wright, we've had on here before. You can go back to our 2ZY episode for his voice. But as deputy, Victor Smythe was a Manchester stalwart for three decades. So this episode, you're getting Smythe. So what was 2ZY Manchester like at the month-old BBC? Well, just as the London station invited the press into the studio, likewise in mid-December... The Metropolitan Vickers Electrical Company Limited entertained a party of journalists at Trafford Park, Manchester. Among the party was a representative of Amateur Wireless. Here is his description of the broadcasting station and of the small experimental station at Hale, six miles distant. The station is situated in the research department buildings of the works of the Metropolitan Vickers Electrical Company, Traffic Park, Manchester. This company is technically very closely associated with the Westinghouse Electrical and Manufacturing Company, who are the pioneers of broadcasting in the United States, and has had at its disposal the whole of the experience and experimental work of that company. Since its inception, 2ZY has been working on 800 watts, but by the time this description of the plant and methods of the station is in print, it should be using the full 1500 watts for which it is licensed. It started on the lower power in order that the many problems to be solved should not be unduly complicated. Now, the long article they published was very technical. The power for the transmitting set is supplied by a small 50-cycle three-phase generator in the works powerhouse. This delivers 440 volts, is employed to drive a triple set consisting of... An now, that is too technical for me. Too technical for you? It's difficult to say. I don't know the threshold of our listeners. So if you want to read the full article, 
I suggest you join our Facebook group. You can go to facebook.com slash groups slash bbcentury and we'll post the screenshot of this article and you can read it there. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. You can just click on it and read it at your leisure. The tension generator is rated at 2.5 kilowatts at 5,000... And join our Facebook group for more things just like that. And thank you as ever to Andrew Barker for sharing these articles with us. ...in an emergency by throwing a single switch from one side to the other. But there are some more choice morsels from that article on 2ZY Manchester. The studio in which are given the concerts that are broadcasted is a draped-off portion of a spacious room adjoining the transmission room. It's arranged to give the utmost acoustic efficiency and to eliminate all resonance and echo. Resonance is not desirable, and the carpeting of the floor and draping of the room are necessary to retain all the real brilliance of tone whilst cutting out echo. A switchboard connects the various microphones with the transmitting set, on the panel is a lamp which is used for signalling that the transmitting set is working, and when the lamp is glowing, no sounds must be made other than those to be transmitted. The equipment of the studio consists of a Steinway Grand Piano, to which can be fitted a Welter player attachment. In addition, there is an Edison Diamond Disc Gramophone and an Aeolian Vocalian Graduola Gramophone. The ordinary desk telephone on the table beneath the control switches is used for announcing the items and for the broadcasting of news. Yes, they're using a telephone as a microphone. They always have done. The placing of the microphones in relation to the performers is a matter in which a constant experimental work is being carried out. The distance depends entirely on the character of the sounds that are to be transmitted, and the whole question is one of considerable difficulty. The choosing of suitable performers is also of more difficulty than outsiders would suppose. Some voices and instruments that are excellent for chamber or concert hall work transmit very badly, whilst others that are not nearly so successful in the ordinary way transmit very well. The ideal is to find vocalists and speakers who can, so to speak, project their personality into the microphone. Such people may or may not be rare. The difficulty is to find them. The quality is elusive, but when it is found, it is welcomed by thousands of listeners in. The Uncle Humpty Dumpty, who tells the children's stories at Manchester, is a case in point. Already he is snowed under with letters from Little Friends he has made. Some of the letters have come from places over 300 miles from Trafford Park. The outstanding feature of 2ZY is the enthusiasm of all those connected with it. They are just as wireless mad as the many thousands who nightly listen to their work. So that's Birmingham and Manchester, that first BBC Christmas, with London making the first three stations. But the summer before, the Postmaster General in the House of Commons said the BBC would consist of eight stations across the country. It was to be a broadcasting service for everyone, or at least most, though the first chief engineer, Peter Eckersley, would have plans soon enough to reach even the furthest farmer. But the tale of relay stations and long wave and Daventry, well, that's all a few years away yet. Here's an even later chief engineer of the BBC, Harold Bishop, who back in 1922 was an engineer at the London studio. It was full steam ahead for the engineers. On Christmas Eve 1922, 5NO Newcastle-on-Tyne came on the air. Stations were promised for Cardiff, Glasgow, Aberdeen and Bournemouth, each with a power of one and a half kilowatts. So yes, it's about time they built that fourth studio. It's the first to start life under the BBC. The other three were pre-existing stations. Newcastle 5-0 is also the first of a new plan to build stations in city centres, unlike Birmingham and Manchester, which were way out in industrial works, far from travel hubs, and they needed artists to travel after dark to the middle of nowhere. Remember A.E. Thompson in Birmingham a few episodes ago. What I used to do was to 
engage a taxi and ask the artists if they'd be good enough to meet under a certain lamppost in Birmingham where a taxi would be waiting and then all crowd in there and they would be taken down to the station at Witten. So you want a nearby railway station, a hotel, the bustle of a city or at least near as 1920s cities get to a bustle and you want to welcome a regular turnover of guest performers. And so for that, Newcastle 5NO turned to WP Cross's concert agency and a separate local agency to receive and transcribe the news from Reuters. So, so far, so good. You also need a high point for the aerial, you know, a giant chimney or tower of some kind. So the Marconi Company are the ones to build this and they are looking into the best places for all of these throughout December. The local station-in-waiting is promised to Newcastle's ears by Christmas. A bit of a rush, but the radio makers, they rise to the challenge. So the plans begin on December the 10th, only a fortnight before the promised launch date. Now that is impressive. 24 Eldon Square in Newcastle is rented at £250 a year, so that's to be the studio and an artist's waiting room. Peel Connor microphones are installed in that studio. Not too reliable, the Peel Connors. They're okay for speech, but you can't get the full range when music is attempted. And in fact, at this point, Captain Round is busy in London trying to perfect a new form of microphone ready for the new year. They've got four offices above it for the support staff and the station director, Tom Payne. Uh, we had a different concert every night. And uh, they used to, people were already ringing up saying, why don't you get a change, Mr. Payne? I said, what do you want, Lockhart's elephants or something like that, you know? That'll be Samuel Lockhart, the noted Victorian elephant trainer. I'm sure you knew that. More from Mr. Payne shortly. This is the first station to have the studio and transmitter at separate sites, a mile apart, linked by phone line. So over in West Blandford Street in Newcastle, there's the stable yard of the Cooperative Wholesale Society, full of horses and carts, but they've also got a 140-foot chimney, perfect for the aerial. So this is where the transmitter will be based. It's the new Marconi Q-type transmitter, the first of its kind. It's a slimmed-down version of the prototype they used at London's 2LO. Now, the London version was vast and unwieldy, and it was the result of lots of trial and error. The quality of a radio broadcast had to be more pleasant than the quality of a phone call. So London's 2LO transmitter, while it's legendary and it's still in the Science Museum today, and if you do a Google image search, you will see this giant Frankenstein of a transmitter. It is actually what my dad would call a bit of a bodge job, the result of many experiments and corrections to try and get it right. So in December 1922, the plan was for Newcastle and then Cardiff and Glasgow in the year after to have slimline versions of this same transmitter. Now they knew how to make it work best. And it was, of course, developed by, yes, our good old friend, Captain H.J. Round. Remember him? There at the start, giving a speech test broadcast from Chelmsford in our first few episodes. And you'll have heard Round's mega talk in one of our specials. So at this point, yeah, he was working on a better microphone and he just designed these new Mark Pony Q-type transmitters. Captain Round was always working on the next technological breakthrough. And as we've heard here before, radar, sonar, yep, he didn't stop with radios. So the Marconi company are building this for the BBC. And that came with its own conflicts. Here's Newcastle's head honcho, announcer and general dog's body, Tom Payne. Marconi built that transmitter to the order of the British Broadcasting Company who were not yet formed. And uh, therefore, I claim it is the first, it was the first BBC transmitter, and no one can dispute that. Now, as you heard from Birmingham and Manchester, the BBC station directors were normally also the main announcers. They did everything. I did the announcing from the very first. 
But in Tom Paine's case, he was setting up ex nihilo, let's say. He was building something from nothing. So he was a little out of his depth, I think it's fair to say. London, Birmingham and Manchester had all grown out of these existing wireless companies. But Newcastle, just a skeleton crew who'd never done this before. Principally the Marconi engineer E.O.P. Thomas and that station boss Tom Payne. Now, word reached head office in London that Tom Payne was having some troubles on December the 23rd. We'd been working on the Eldon Square studio from where we had a line to Blandford Street for about 14 days. But at the last minute, our apparatus at Eldon Square broke down. The Marconi engineer, Mr E.O.P. Thomas, put it like this. A hitch arose and there was no hope of connecting studio and transmitter. As a last resort, I had several empty horse drays wheeled into the stable yard. Chairs were placed on them, microphones connected to the nearby transmitter. The inaugural programme of 5 and 0 was punctually carried out. Tom Payne picks up the story. Determined not to disappoint our public, we rushed round to the yard where the transmission apparatus was housed at Blandford Street, and there, with a microphone, the old telephone type, placed on a lorry and an aerial slung from the top of the tall chimney on the Cooperative Wholesale Society building, we gave our first broadcast concert. I made the first announcement, not knowing if anyone could hear me, or if any were listening in with their crystal sets. In the open air, I gave a violin recital, uh, Miss May Osborne sang, and Mr Griffiths of Newcastle played a cello solo while I held the microphone close to the instrument so that the sound would be picked up. Well, that's not all it picked up. A howling dog in a nearby kennel ruined much of the broadcast. Thankfully, next day, Christmas Eve, the link up to the studio was fixed. Newcastle 5-0 is officially launched after this pre-show day from the stable yard. Well, it is Christmas. With cattle and donkeys and maybe some sheep, Newcastle 5-0 was born in a barn. But they still struggled with technical limitations for some time. It restricted the hours of broadcasting, it seemed. Station boss Tom Payne recalled that the Marconi engineer, Mr Thomas, didn't really allow him much broadcasting. Mr Thomas wouldn't stand for more than an hour broadcasting in the evening at first. He said, I said, but we'll have to have more, Mr Thomas. He said, no, I can't get my transmitter. It'll have to be got ready. And he wouldn't do more than an hour. I wasn't allowed to order him. I was BBC. He was Marconi. So yes, Newcastle has a greater limit on time than its southern cousins to start with. As to what you would hear in that hour they were allowed to broadcast, the Sunday Daily Echo reported this on the 28th of December. Many readers would doubtlessly hear the Hawaiian Guitar Band, which performed at the Havelock Picture House a couple of weeks ago. Well, the writer heard them again on the wireless, if he remembers rightly, from Manchester. At the time of listening in, the item was rendered as a result of a telephone request for an encore. Last night, the items played by Mr Laycock, the corded soloist at Newcastle, were doubtlessly listened to by an audience probably reaching well into three figures. Oh, the items were beautifully rendered. Yes, well into three figures. Oh yes, not thousands. Maybe not even hundreds, but perhaps hundreds of listeners were on board that Christmas Eve in the northeast. So as we stampede forward in our tale... Let's leave Newcastle and check in with what was on air from the BBC in London for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Now, we actually featured much of this in fuller detail in our Christmas special, episode 20, I think it was. But it'd be rude not to mention what was on while we're here chronologically. So, the first London BBC Christmas, in a nutshell, went like this. 
It's Christmas Eve. At 5pm, there's Reverend John Mayer with the first religious broadcast for children. At 5.30, the truth about Father Christmas, known in some listings as the true story of Father Christmas as told by the fairy dustman. That's Arthur Burroughs again, of course, as Uncle Arthur. The first broadcast drama written for radio. It's written by Phyllis Twig and it features sound effects. In fact, probably the first sound effects of formal radio. Popular wireless magazine said, The true story of Father Christmas was probably the most thrilling thing any kiddie has ever listened to. After a few carols from the Chantry singers, at 9.15, Reverend John Mayo returns, giving the first proper actual religious broadcast. This is too early a calling. Reverend John Mayo, the rector of Whitechapel, is going to give you a short address. I have just come from my church in Whitechapel, a great church situated in the midst of all the noise and the turmoil and the dust and the slums and all that Whitechapel connotes. And it is my privilege, by the aid of the wizardry of Mr. Marconi in this wonderful house, to speak, as I understand, to many thousands of people. Surely no man has ever proclaimed the gospel from such an extraordinary pulpit as I am now occupying. Hear the fuller version of Reverend John Mayo's Christmas address and much more on Peter Pan, the two stations with different versions of O Come All Ye Faithful, and ample more on our Christmas special about ten episodes ago. Now we'll have more next time on what Wreath made of Newcastle and Tom Paine, But before we go, your correspondence and an airwave memory. Now, here's a tweet that we had from Andrea Smith. She tweeted us at BB Century, which is what you can do if you're on Twitter. We're on Facebook too, of course, with a page and a group where you can share such newspaper cuttings or pics or screenshots of golden bits of broadcasting history books as Andrea did. Now, she noted this from the 1933 book Broadcasting by Hilda Matheson. I can't wait to get to Hilda Matheson on this podcast. Now, this book was really the first how-to guide to broadcasting. So in 1933, Hilda Matheson wrote, Women announcers seem to be on the whole unwelcome in Anglo-Saxon countries, though favoured in Latin countries and in Central Europe. It is true that most women's voices do not yet transmit as well as men's with their lower register, but it is possible that the immense importance attached by the British to sport makes them feel that no woman could read football and cricket results with a peculiar conviction which a male voice alone would convey to them. I have in fact heard this seriously put forward as an objection to women announcers, in spite of the fact that many male announcers themselves neither play nor are interested in those manly games. Yes, and Andrea says, I wish I could say that ideas like this have died out. Perhaps not. But, she says, I'm glad to see that Channel 4 didn't take any notice of them for their excellent Paralympics coverage. Now, Hilda Matheson, we haven't quite dealt with her yet. She's not joined the BBC at this stage. At this point, she was personal secretary to Lady Astor, the first female MP to take her seat in the Commons. Hilda Matheson, though, is a force of nature. She's the first BBC director of talks, one of the highest ranking women in the early decades of the BBC. And she's got quite a tale to tell. More on her in a few episodes' time. We won't wait until Hilda joins the BBC to talk about her. Now, some follow-up from last episode, especially with regard to our airwave memories. That's an AM sent to us by Sue Hawkins. We have had some corrections. Alan Stafford says, of course, Arthur Askey and Richard Murdoch were in bandwagon. It was Murdoch and Kenneth Horne in much binding in the marsh but there's no reason why listeners' early memories should be totally accurate. I'm sure mine aren't. Thank you, Alan. Uh, Paul Hayes also corrects uh, the airwave memory. Grace Archer was not killed off in 1952, as stated in the episode. It was, of course, ITV's opening night in 1955. 
Yeah, thank you, Paul. Spoilers. Uh, yeah, he said there was, in fact, a whole play about it called Dead Girls Tell No Tales. And, uh, yeah, we'll put the link to that in the show notes. I don't know if you can hear that play online now, but there's a link to a page all about it. So this was a notable moment of broadcasting. On ITV's opening night, the Archers deliberately staged this major character demise to try and steal the viewers slash listeners. So thank you, Paul Hayes, for sending us that. And, hey, Paul Hayes has made a cracking documentary on BBC Radio Norfolk, and you can hear that one. It was on quite recently, so it's on BBC Sounds for a bit. It's on Nexus... Norfolk's forgotten TV station. I heard this documentary the other day and it is fantastic. Amazing archive, including the unearthing of Morecambe and Wise's views on the Pythons. That made many newspapers and Radio Force Today programme. Wow, the power of archive. Plus, Paul's got interviews with Gorinda Charder, Arthur Smith and loads more. So just listen to it. Again, link in the show notes. Paul Hayes, his documentary on Nexus is highly recommended. While we're in airwave memories mode then, shall we? Let's. Here's an AM, an airwave memory from podcaster, presenter, writer, Layla Johnston, known online as the Punk Hotelier. Okay, this isn't my earliest memory of BBC broadcast, but it is one of my earliest memories of listening to the radio and it really affecting me and it really changing my life in many ways, actually. Um, Just opening up my mind to what was possible it was a show called um, The Armando Unici Show, and it was on the radio, I think it was on Radio 1, in the mid-90s, maybe, I'm going to say 1994, and it was Armando just having a laugh with his mates, and they were like a posse, so it was obviously sort of a satire of the Radio 1 posse stuff that was happening at the time in the 90s, um, and it was semi-scripted, and they had little sketches and things, but they just all seemed to be having such a brilliant time, and they would have phone-ins, and there would be things like, every week there'd be some sort of outrageous appeal to the listeners, because it was live, I think it must have been live, because there were phone-ins. So he'd say stuff like, um, I want you to record a domestic argument in your house, and send me the arguments. And then I remember there were like two or three weeks in a row, and no one had sent any arguments in, and uh, and I sort of started a fight with my mum deliberately to try and record that argument and she worked out what I was doing and I got into a lot of trouble but the big thing that happened actually as a result of that show there were lots of people on it who were his mates at the time who weren't you know megastars at that point but were sort of known writers in in the comedy circuit like Leon Herring and Dave Schneider and Rebecca Front and people like that used to come in we thought that Pete Bainham was amazing me and my brother loved him Um, and we we got we were, got the opportunity to go to the Edinburgh Festival for the first time ever in 1994. So we requested the brochure and we were circling all these p- performers we wanted to see. And we were like, oh man, we should really book Pete Bainham really early because he's obviously amazing and he's going to definitely sell out. And of course we got to Edinburgh as these kind of young teenagers with our like uh, ever doting mother <laughs> taking us around all these shows. And uh, we were pretty much the only people in Pete's show but it was awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Layla. Ah, yes, the Armando Iannucci show. Wasn't that a fabulous show? I remember it so well. Friday Night Armistice, that was his as well. Ah, oh, just gorgeous. Let alone, of course, the many other great things that Mr Iannucci has gone on to do. Partridge, the thick of it. Avenue 5, you can now see on Now TV. Now that is one space comedy show with a bit of money behind it. It's Red Dwarf with a budget. So thank you, Layla. Find her work online. Google Punk Hotelier and her travel stories and creations will be revealed to you. Send me your AMs, your airwave memories, to paul at paulcarenza.com in text form, and I'll read them out, or in recorded voice memo form, and you can read them out. Get on the podcast, share your golden airwave memories. 
Next time, Reith begins, but en route to head office, his first task will be that stopover in Newcastle to inspect that station and that stable yard and that lorry and that howling dog and that Tom Payne. Plus, Reith's incredible first day at the London office. Oh, it's quite a tale. It's one of my favourite episodes. I haven't even recorded it yet. It's the end of the beginning and the start of the BBC proper. Finally. So as we bid our regional bosses farewell for now, a final word from Percy Edgar, the Birmingham boss, who sums up the mania when it all started of being a station manager and an announcer and a musician and an engineer. And how we all revelled in those hectic, crowded days when we announced the programmes, read the news, operated the player piano and the gramophone, were uncles in the children's hour. If you like what you hear, please do spread word of us. It's the best way for new listeners to discover us. You can like and share what we do on social media or, you know, actually put it in an email. Tell someone who you think would like this. Hey, you might like this. Because if you like us, your friends are going to love us. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Patreon. You can buy us a coffee at coffee.com. Links to all these things are in the show notes. And join us next time for the beginning of Wreath. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. The original music is composed by Will Farmer. Archive clips are either public domain, being over 50 years old, or they belong to the British Broadcasting Corporation, used with their kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights reserved. Don't forget, this podcast is nothing to do with the BBC. We're just talking about the company. We are not made or endorsed by the corporation. You hear? Stay informed, educated and entertained. And join us next time for the start of the Wreath era on the British Broadcasting Century.